Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today, we're going to be digging into Cleopatra, a 1970 Japanese adult animated fantasy film directed by Osamu Tezuka and Aichi Yamamoto. And also joining us today from Vanderbilt University and the creator and founder of Animated Antiquity is very special guest, Chiara Soprizio. And we're very excited. And just uh, as a preface to our audience, this is a film with very mature content, X-rated, you might say, discussions of sexual acts and also sexual violence. So just so our listeners are aware. Chiara, we'd like to start with our guests uh, and both the overarching question of, did you dig this movie? And just your relationship to animation and how did you sort of come upon animated antiquity and animation in general? Sure. Well, thank you guys for having me. And I will just start off by saying that I do dig this movie. I have idiosyncratic tastes. I'm super into vintage, oddball, 70s animation, generally speaking. And this really like hit all of my targets for that kind of weirdo culty material. That being said, if I were regular American guy who walked into a movie theater in 1971 or whenever this was released in the United States thinking that I was getting a X-rated, sexy, erotic film, I don't know that I would have really dug it all that much. And it seems that people really did not (laughs) dig it all that much. But for me, I just, it's such a hot mess. I love it. (laughs) What can I say? In terms of how I got into my animation, I mean, I was a child. So there's that, right? And I've just always loved animation. In terms of Japanese animation, I had a boyfriend in high school who showed me the film Akira. And that was kind Mm -hmm. of it, right? I mean, that movie. Yeah, to this day, obviously, so epic, such an important sort of groundbreaking film. I don't think I realized at the time what it was. I just thought it was so cool. And it was like nothing I'd ever really seen before. And that was right kind of at the time when anime was getting really popular in the United States anyway, I'd say, you know, uh, Sailor Moon was becoming a thing. And I also really got into all the Miyazaki movies not long after that. And so from there, it's just been a matter of exploration you know there's so much out there in the realm of anime to explore i feel like even sometimes i'm still an amateur when it comes to anime but yeah so that's kind of how i got into it how about you guys i guess i'll go um i remember i think my earliest more anime style of cartoon was digimon and it like was snuck in with my normal saturday cartoons and then eventually like toonami became the big thing so i would see like naruto and loved inuyasha the whole kagome inuyasha yelling at each other thing i loved it it was great and then just kept watching things and eventually i got a partner who was also super anime and i'm surprised he's not forced me to watch akira yet he's told me over and over again that will happen It has not happened, but I I need to see that one for sure. So I've been a big fan for a long time, probably more so than movies. Like sword and sandal films are like one of the few genres I really like. But the last movie that I saw before COVID happened was uh, the Boku no No Hero movie. Uh, Same. That was Um, literally the last one I saw in theaters before. That was was for me the first one I saw in person as the lockdowns were starting to loosen up. That being said... um, I strangely enjoyed this. Like it had Scooby-Doo element. Like it had some of those things that I was really used to in American cartoons. Like seeing it here was just a little mind blowing. It's like, this is very familiar and nostalgic and it's got this weird history element to it. So like I am intrigued in so many ways. I'm going to say I actually enjoyed watching it. I don't know if I'd watch it again, but I enjoyed watching this one. I am like at the opposite end of the spectrum, you guys. I'm so this is sorry. good. We're rarely this <laughs> I know. divided. It's true. I absolutely hated this so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can appreciate it. I liked kind of the weird abstract craziness that things just sort of spiraled into. Like there was a whole like art history reveal like in the triumph and I'm It's like, what's happening? What is going on? And it didn't hit me until you said it, Christy, but the Scooby-Doo goofy aspect to it, I think just like turned the wrong 
direction for me and I could not enjoy it. <laughs> so this was not for me, but I think I also am very, very shallowly wading into any animation waters. I was never a huge cartoons person as a child. They always kind of scared me. Like Scooby-Doo freaked me out when I was little. I don't know what that's about. I love Miyazaki movies always. I watched some of Naruto, but I like it never really held all of my interests. So I think maybe it's just not for me. It's not, I'm not the audience for this. <laughs> that is okay. Uh, yeah, it's dig gustibus. <laughs> I was, was watching, I, I kind of I was like, I think I might secretly dig this movie or like weirdly <laughs> or perversely dig this movie in like kind of certain ways. Like it is wild and like kind of as a film, like doesn't wholly function for reasons we can get into. But I found like, I'm, I'm here for it. And just for our audience, so they kind of know what we're talking about, the movie is viewable on YouTube with English subtitles. But to kind of give a general arc of what we're talking about is the sort of framing device for this movie is a sci-fi setting where humans in the future are at war with another planet. And there's something called the Cleopatra plan. And so the humans of the future send back three of their agents into the bodies. And my first reaction was, did this movie like preempt Assassin's Creed? Because it's basically taking the premise of <laughs> Assassin's Creed, where you send someone's mind into the body of someone in the past so they can figure out what happened with Cleopatra. And then we basically get a anime version of Cleopatra's sort of life, for lack of a better word, with Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony. And then it comes back at the end where, where the sort of agents have learned what they needed to learn about the Cleopatra plan. I so, thought that I had started the wrong movie when it like <laughs> it's like starts on the spaceship and it's this big intro. I was like, what am I watching? And, and it's also this this wild combination where it's sort of live action actors with animated heads effectively. And then the first like three minutes are insane because like two people walk into a room and they like go to a door and then one of them, she just gets vaporized instantly. And then there's a guy on the other side of the door. And he's like, oh, she was a spy. The real one's been here the whole time. Anyways, would you like some caviar? And then they eat caviar and then they get put into these tubes and like shot back in time, which if that sounds insane, I'm pretty much describing exactly what happens. I feel like the movie does not seem to need the framing at all. It seems very tacked on. And I don't know if it was or not. You totally don't need it, A. And B, right off the bat, I was like, wait a minute, the people of Earth don't know what happened to Cleopatra? <laughs> like, <laughs> what happened? Like, that that opened up a whole nother Pandora's box of questions about, like, wait, what actually happened on Earth, right? So, yes, I think that sense of what am I even watching, right out of the gate, they just set the tone of aporia that is mm -hmm. and there's dominant this, this for this whole thing. And there's this weird paradox where I couldn't tell if the people whose minds were in the past bodies were like controlling the people of the past or if they were just along for the ride and witnessing because it sort of seems like they're along for the ride. But then they'll do things like probably in my favorite scene where one of them just invents a gun out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> Eli's gesturing to her background that features the gun, yeah, which, which in that sense, gun. it means the people from the future are affecting the past in like a weird like so was it always did cleopatra always have a gun but then i'm like to come back to the phrase I like to use you know movies are either dreams or puzzles and maybe let's not think about this like a puzzle because we're gonna end up in that aporia state well it did make me think of this old party question colin that you used to ask us which we have talked about before but like what would you make if you went back in time what could you make and I feel like he seemed to make gunpowder, like the bombs, like that makes sense to me. You could definitely find things to make an explosive. But the gun, I was like, <laughs> where did you get bullets? I'm like, how did you get this metal? I don't know. It just, again, it took it to that puzzle level and... Mm, that leads me to the first point, which is one of the stylistic features of this movie is it's sporadically very anachronistic. Well, there'll be a scene where Anthony goes down and like gets something out of a refrigerator or like Caesars in a Corvette or something like that. So I wanted to probe people what they thought about both the art style, but it's the anachronistic sort of view of history. Just to say a little bit about Osamu Tetsuka. This is something that he actually does in quite a bit of the manga and anime that he produces. So it's not unique to this film. So if you haven't ever really seen anything of his before, not all of it, but lots of it does play around with anachronism and very deliberately like put things in your face that you go, 
huh, what? Like the gun or the Corvette. It's not subtle, right? And so there is a sort of question of like, what is he trying to accomplish? He was interested in antiquity, I would say, but not just Greek and Roman antiquity. He draws on medieval stuff. He messes around with Japanese history as well. And I think for him, a very unifying theme of his oeuvre, shall we say, is that humans are kind of always the same and that humanity makes the same mistakes over and over again. And so I think playing with anachronism is a way for him to, on the one hand, create this alienation effect, but then also to just be like, oh, well, but wait, actually, how different would it be if they had a gun in the arena or if Caesar did triumph in a Corvette instead of a chariot, right? It's still, for example, the marker of prestige or something, you know? So so it's kind of clever, but it can certainly be very jarring, especially, like I said, if you are just coming at this fresh out of the gate. I was looking at <laughs> Animated Antiquity, reading up on this movie. And I know that eventually there was a change to the name when it was coming to the U.S., I think, which was like Cleo, Cleopatra, sex goddess, sex queen was one of them. And the other one was like Cleopatra 2025. Mm-hmm. That's not that far in the future for us now. But it always makes me go back to Homer and just being like, we are telling these stories over and over again. And as we keep moving forward, those anachronisms are going to like creep in And it seems very jarring if you actually know, especially if you recognize the technology from your own time period and know it wasn't present in the past. But, you know, 3,000 years in the future from now, they're like, sure, there was guns in that nice big range of however thousands of years ago. So this totally checks out. It's like if you see any Renaissance painting of a scene from antiquity, it's like they're there with, you know, their Renaissance clothes and violins and cannons and musket. You know, Achilles has like a musket or something like that. There's ample precedence for just reimagining antiquity through the sort of contemporary lens. But this movie also, it sort of simultaneously does both because it's like the gun bit is deliberately like this is something from the future. And one of the, I think, the boons of animation is that it doesn't necessarily need to follow logic. We can just enjoy or really dive into the irreality of it. That's like what makes it so compelling because it's like not a real thing. You can do anything and any one thing can be as insensical as any other thing. I think that's something that Tetsuka really embraces as an animator is like, I can just throw Astro Boy into the middle of the movie. Yeah, well, mm, yeah. I recognize was Astro Boy is like, I'm looking for all of these like special guest appearances. I like, I know that all of a sudden a Shinobi showing up to give a report. I know that's probably a character. I don't recognize him. But then Astro Boy showed up. I'm like, I know that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I understood that reference. <laughs> I was going to say, on the question of just being able to be so wonderfully fantastic, why is Caesar green? That's an awesome question. And I did a little digging. And can I just also say that isn't it refreshing in a way that your first question isn't, was Cleopatra Egyptian or Greek? But rather, (laughs) why is Caesar green? I personally find that to be a little bit of a breath of fresh air. But... One hypothesis is that he's green because he wanted to make him look like an oxidized bronze statue. Okay. And there is that scene where he's like all the statues, you know, and right. he's yeah. like Iwo, Iwo Jima and Mount mm-hmm. Rushmore. And they're like, oh, Caesar thinks he's a god, right? So that's one theory. But I also was thinking about the green Caesar bust. Okay, because that's the only thing I kept thinking about. I was like, oh my gosh, it looks like he's green. Ah! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Tetsuka was an educated man. I have to believe that he probably was aware of the existence of that bust and the fact that it is placed right next to a bust of Cleopatra in the museum and that perhaps it was made in Egypt, right? So Mm -hmm. I do think he's probably riffing on that. I want to believe that he's riffing on that. And if the statue theory holds, then that might make some sense i love it um but it also could just be like because he wanted to make him green i mean octavian is blue and i don't know that yeah. there's any logic for that choice at all so yeah i was wondering about green caesar myself anthony looks like he kind of popped out of an asterix comic or something like that there was also like some animation styles like, i think particularly when you see scenes of like people in the streets and stuff like that it's almost like some of them would look like you know peanuts cartoon peanuts not physical peanuts um yeah or there's the shot with um with astro boy it sort of just swaps styles for like a second they mentioned some of the designs were also off of coin portraiture so you could also see bronze from coins and then isn't 
I forget which Egyptian god it is. He's the one who like died and torn apart and Isis. O- Osiris. Osiris. Yeah, Osiris is also green, right? Like commonly Ooh. painted in that format. So That's the true. god connection there. I like possibly. it. I like it. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. I hadn't thought about that either. That's a great connection to be making. And I would just say about the peanuts figures, just to go back to that, there is like a serious kind of whiplash, I would say, in terms of the styles of anime that are brought into play here. And just to like go a little expert on you guys for just a second here. um, That's why you're here. (laughs) So this period was like a really insane period for animation period throughout the whole world. The late 60s and early 70s are this crazy convergence of a lot of different things happening that allow for insane experimentation and weird stuff to be happening in the realm of animation. So one thing is that animation starts being shown on TV a whole lot more in the 60s. It's a TV medium now. It's not a theatrical medium anymore. And with that, it sort of becomes a kid's medium as well. And then you have the sort of social movements and everything that's happening in the late 60s and early 70s that comes together with animation and people realize like, hey, we can actually make animation for adults. And that was something that was happening in Japan at that time. These adult comics are starting to be made and they have a slightly different look. They have a little bit different aesthetic. There's like more hatching. It's not as cartoony. It's like sharper and a little bit grittier looking. And Tetsuka was like realizing this change was happening and wanted to sort of jump on the bandwagon somewhat. And so in 1967, sort of shifted his style and created a magazine called Calm that embraced the sort of adult comic thing. So you get all these like weird productions. Think about Yellow Submarine, for example, or Mm -hmm. Fantastic Planet, early 70s in France. It's this time where like anything really is possible. But unfortunately, it sort of fails. Adults do not embrace animation in this moment. And adult animation, not even erotic animation, but adult animation period really is not a thing again until I would say, with the exception of like The Simpsons, probably the late 90s or the early 2000s. And it's almost like the writers and the artists just go bananas (laughs) to the point where you get things like Cleopatra where... You know, sometimes there is such a thing as too much artistic freedom, I would say. (laughs) I love it. Um, The first sex scene, which is just undulating lines with tiny hands and no heads. (laughs) These are very arousing lines, I guess, but I don't know what's happening right now. And I definitely understand what is happening. But if you just walked in and saw this and didn't realize the lead up to it, you probably would have no idea what's going on. And at least in the United States, we were kind of talking in the very beginning was like part of the sort of selling point, maybe for American audiences, was the sort of sex appeal, the X-ratedness, the raunchiness. And then this movie, I think, was vying to be like the first X-rated film in the United States. But then it was beat out by like a year, not even by Fritz the Cat, which I haven't seen all of Fritz the Cat. But from what I have seen, that's a much more sort of like National Lampoon-esque animated film where it's like it's really raunchy. It's all about sex and antics and things like that. And and one of the things I was sort of surprised about with this movie was there was a lot of sex and adult stuff, but it was less than I expected it to be, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think that's part of why it failed is because what I guess constitutes erotic maybe cross-culturally did not quite connect. And yeah, you're right. Like It's not an official X rating from the MPAA. It's just a self-imposed <laughs> like <laughs> misnomer, I guess we could say. You think about Japanese anime and eroticism, and the pictures that probably come into your mind are pretty graphic at this point, right? There's this whole genre of hentai, or they don't, actually don't call it hentai in Japan, apparently. I learned recently. This is more what they call ecchi, right? That's like, it's softcore. So I think we have to kind of go back to maybe like an early 70s mentality and think this would have been envelope pushing then perhaps, but it still would not, I think for American audiences have translated into pornographic by any stretch. And like Christy, you're totally right. Like undulating lines ain't going to cut it. I don't think in that regard, which to me as a modern viewer, I was kind of like relieved by honestly, that it wasn't going to be like this, you know? Yeah. I was, 
a little nervous going into this when we were like, this is what we're watching. Was, oh, no. <laughs> the preview was very misleading. Like the lining up to gang rape, Libya. Yup. I thought that was like, this is going to be so bad. And then it all just kind of never comes to that. And it really, except for some montage scenes, it's really centered on Cleopatra and her sexuality and her seducing all of these different men. I guess that leads us to kind of spoilers for the audience, but the Cleopatra plan, as I sort of realized in the final three minutes of the film, like the conceit is that these women are oversexing men or sort of their sexuality is weakening men to leave them exposed to invasion or something like that. So that's kind of the conceit of the Cleopatra plan. And like the thesis of the movie is that Anthony was too besotted with Cleopatra. And that's why he sort of lost the war to Octavian. I want to come back later again to talk about Octavian. But yeah, that's like, I mean, that was a thesis at the end. I was kind of like, oh, that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth of the theme of just like, oh, women are dangerous and they will upset men. But I think it also falls back into the old school Cleopatra story, right? Like that's sort of how we've always talked about that narrative arc. So I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was like, oh. <laughs> I will agree that obviously this hypersexualized image of her is so tired and extremely problematic. But I feel like there was some clever subversion going on here. A, the Cleopatra plan failed. I mean, she <laughs> fell in love with these guys. At least the way it was portrayed in the film, it seemed very sincere. And when she died, she's like, Antonius, I'm coming to you. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah, Which, yeah. Why she fell in love with Antonius and not Caesar, I don't 100% all, I also want to talk about that too. Later, <laughs> he was such but... a goofball. <laughs> but B, the little like song that they sing in the middle of where there's that like Lysistrata-like moment where the women of Egypt are all like sleeping with the Roman soldiers the night before the Battle of Actium. Then that song is the closing credit song. It's really about men and how men are like monkeys and how their sexual nature is like never changing. And that it says something like, I'm a slave to passion, which you guys know is like such a motif of like ancient erotic mm -hmm. poetry and other things too, Apuleius, whatever. So I actually kind of felt like on the one hand, it was propping up the myth. But on the other hand, it was like kind of critiquing it. And we can talk about, I think as well here, just her whole transformation, right? That there's mm -hmm. this whole exposure of the process and the fact that it is a process, that there's nothing natural about it. She says, this is totally artificial. She says that herself, right? That seemed really kind of meta and clever to me. So I, I would like to hear what you guys think about that transformation of Cleopatra. Yeah, I think the line that went with that, Polidonia. I think that's her name. Apollodoria. Apollod yeah, that's Apollodoria it. Apollodoria mentions that in response to that, because Cleopatra is not necessarily on board with the transformation and the response is an artificial flower lasts much longer than a natural one. And that was really interesting because it's true this myth of Cleopatra has lasted much longer than what her authentic life might have been. So there was some very interesting dialogue happening there with that. I also think about the image of Cleopatra that we have on coins that people say, oh, she wasn't actually that pretty. Like she must have been such a charismatic person. Like, did she actually look not as beautiful as maybe some people think? I think that's kind of an interesting twist on this, too, is women sort of trying to actively or proactively make themselves attractive to men and what the line and the agency of that is. It's like, are we, you know, looking attractive in order to assassinate Caesar and rescue our country? Or are we looking attractive for men because we love them? Or I think there's an interesting like feminine line there that I didn't think about before, but I like that subversion. I also really like Kiara kind of the idea of this process in the movie where when we first meet Cleopatra, she looks not like the sort of iconic beauty that she is for most of the film. And she's put through almost like a plastic surgery where they literally turn her into Buddy. like jello. Yeah, yeah. like Play-Doh and they mold her. Like I'm inclined now, Kiara has sort of tipped me that way that this is the story of the story of Cleopatra where whatever Cleopatra was like personality or appearance wise in actuality, we've kind of created this image of her that we're still, you know, debating and arguing and getting into Twitter fights over today of this image that's been sort of artificially sculpted that is Cleopatra and then is so intricately and implicitly tied to these powerful men like Caesar and Anthony 
that Cleopatra is artificial in a lot of ways. That moment made me think of Pandora too, actually forming the ideal woman through clay for this great deception. Um, or, sorry, the fembots. Yeah, I wrote down fembot. Like when I was watching this, that was like, I wrote Frankenstein and then I wrote fembot. But I think like Pandora is also a really awesome way into this. I was just going to also note, there was this line that was said, I can't remember by who, but I wrote this down next to all my notes here. If her nose had been higher, the whole fate of the world would have been changed. Wow. I mean, I do feel like that is like a comment on, like you said, this sort of artificiality of the story you know and I I have to say like just side note here like I have a hard time teaching Cleopatra I find it very challenging and I know that a lot of people out there have been writing amazing things and doing great work and you just referenced this recent brouhaha about Gal Gadot playing the Cleopatra of course we got to talk about this a little bit but for some weird reason as kind of insane as this movie (laughs) was it did give me a weird way into talking about the molding of the myth, right? The creation of this person and and how she she's not invested in it. And that's probably why the plan fails, right? She's an object, right? Like it's all just sort of put upon her and it doesn't really matter in some ways who she really is underneath it all. I, I don't know. I'm just sort of like spitballing a little bit here. But I felt like it was clever and maybe a useful way into talking about, like like if I showed that clip of the transformation of Cleopatra in class or something, that that could actually be a useful way to dig into this very fraught discussion for students or for anyone, really. I'm remembering when we talked about Cleopatra, the Elizabeth Taylor version, so much of that movie is just Caesar and Antony's story and she's just sort of happens to be there and she's the sort of avenue in which we get to talk about these other men and thinking about this movie I could see some of that but it seemed much more about her feelings about what was happening than the live action ever really seemed to have so I do like that as an avenue to talk about her as like a historical figure and like things that we know happened but also there is so much ink spilt about and Twitter words about her as a personal character or a personal person. So yeah, I, I like this. Yeah, it's like we're never going to get to that, right? Mm-hmm. We all, and yeah. so there's failure on our part as well. And I guess that's what makes it hard to teach about her sometimes because I just think there's so many layers. We're never going to get to the real Cleopatra. It's sort of futile. It's wrapped up in so much like identity investment. People are very invested, whether Greek or, or Mena or whatever it is, classicist, non-classicist. Like Kira said, it becomes so fraught sometimes. Not that we shouldn't do it. We- I mean, absolutely we should. But it's more like talking about whatever this process is or this manufacturing of this myth is almost as interesting as maybe the person themselves. Not to say that she wasn't interesting. I'm sure she was fascinating, but we're never going to get there. We're never going to be able to excavate down that deep. (laughs) And instead of despairing over that and like skipping over it in class, maybe now I can just be like, hey, let's talk about it like this. I will say that the 1964 Cleopatra clearly was a huge influence on this film. There's no two ways about that just in terms of her looks. The plot is fairly close. And it was a big sensation in Japan, just like it was elsewhere in the world. I found looking around a 25-page booklet that they distributed at the theaters in Japanese with the film. So, you know, that's kind of amazing. And I think part of the appeal of this story for Japan is that ironically, I guess, in some ways, like Egypt is really like an exotic thing for Japanese people, right? So... It's clear that the Elizabeth Taylor experience is present. I should just also say partially, probably, what motivated Tetsuka to have this thing distributed in the United States would have been closing this Hollywood circle, right? The U.S. audiences, of course, would have known that movie. So, of course, they would have been interested in the story of Cleopatra again. The other reason he did it, I should note, is because he was hopelessly going bankrupt. He had bankrupted his studio making a erotic version of A Thousand and One Nights that did well in Japan, but did horribly in the United States. And this was what he thought could save it. And this was the final nail in the coffin. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. He had already started a new production company. So it didn't matter that much. But Mushi Pro, this was 
basically the end of the road for Mushi Pro, um, sadly to say. He gambled and lost on this one, but you can kind of see like the lines that he was trying to maybe to connect on. Yeah. It seems like this movie does very little in just terms of like prefacing or explaining any of the, the plot or really like the, the history. And it sort of seems like because we're in 1970, we're only six, seven years out from Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra. So that story would likely already be fresh in audiences' heads. It seems like this movie does rely a little bit on audiences already being on board or already knowing the basic Cleopatra mythos, we could call it. And I wonder almost if today, if you were to show, say, an undergrad or any person and, you know, if they hadn't seen Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra or they just don't know the history or whatever, would this movie make any sense to them? Or they'd be like, what, what is happening? Or just the significance of Caesar in Egypt and like Rome and what's going on with who these people even are. I would say the timeline would really throw you off because you have the sense it's happening in a fairly condensed amount of time and not over decades. And the only time you get a real sense of a time skip is she asks for lemons and starts chewing on a lemon. And she's like, I must be pregnant with Caesar's child. And all of a sudden, the baby's next to the bed to her. You're like, wow, <laughs> if <laughs> only it were that easy. <laughs> and the same thing happens with the leopards, too, where it's like yeah, the, 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 it's like the other. Kittens. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like that in mythology, right? There's always like, you know, a god visits a mortal and then in the next sentence, there's a baby. Instant baby. (laughs) I know. And then it it was so great how she's like, kill him now. And you're like, the woman just gave birth. Like of all the time she had to kill him over the past nine months. Like, why did you pick right now? That's not going to work. While he's holding your child too. It's like, that seems like a really bad time to be wielding a knife. I'm just saying. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) I will say it's been a while since I've seen the Cleopatra movie, but I did honestly get like a strange sense. Like if you weren't focused so much on Cleopatra's relative powerlessness, there actually seemed growth of her as a character of like where she just seems holy and reluctant at the beginning. But by the time Mark Antony has died and even like when Mark Antony shows up, she's like, all right, I know how this works. I know what to do. Here's all the steps. And then Mark Antony dies and Octavia shows up and she's like, all right, let's try it one more time. She's ingrained in this behavior, but it's also a sense of growth because she's comfortable with it. Like she has just kind of resigned herself to it. And I know that doesn't seem like growth in the sense of she's made herself a better person, but it's more of like, you really see how this lack of choice or this only choice being how she's been told to operate her whole life is just kind of natural to her now. That comes across a lot towards the very end. Yeah, she does put up a little bit of a resistance when she's talking. She says, oh, enough already. I don't want to have to do this again, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's clear, like you said, she seems pretty resigned to it. She knows what the steps are and understands what her role is in a way that maybe she didn't in the beginning. Like, she's not going to fall in love with Octavian the way she did with Julius Caesar, obviously. And this might be a good time to talk about why that's not going to work out anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we should go there because that was a fun twist all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So to preference, it seems to be setting up that Octavian in the movie is going to be the next Caesar slash Anthony because no man could resist Cleopatra. She's been explicitly designed for this exact reason, you know, manufactured to a T. And then the reveal is Octavian is gay and that he's sort of fawning over Ionius or or Ionius, the... Roman slave, gladiator. Yeah, gun inventor. (laughs) Magician. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the the twist reveal and that the only possible way someone couldn't fall to Cleopatra's wiles is to basically just be not attracted to women. Which, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Or maybe there's not a lot to unpack there. It's like, that's just kind of... It feels like the logical conclusion. If you have manufactured the perfect fembot, it's the only weakness that it kind of made sense to me, actually. I rewatched the end and her face, like she's like, <laughs> and then it cuts back to him and he's flamingly gay. And then it cuts back to her face again and she's like, and that's when she decides she's going to go kill herself, mm-hmm. right? Like She's like, okay, the jig is up. I want to not distract too much, but the device that which she kills herself is the Sphinx is a murder hotel where you go into the Sphinx and you check into a specific room and that room kills you in a very particular way. And so she checks into the cute snake room where a snake with a bow tie comes out of the ceiling and kills you. Scooby-Doo which vibes. Is, 
Big yeah. Very Scooby Doo. Oh my Yeah, gosh. it was the only thing that was missing was them walking by a painting and then the eyeballs in the painting move. Yes. So follow them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even know what to say about the Octavian thing. It's shocking. It's so inappropriate. And yet, I think, Eli, you're right that it is the sort of logical end game of the Cleopatra plan, right? It's like, what is the only way this plan can go wrong? And again, that takes us back to the theme song that is. Men are like monkeys. This is just how they are. They can't resist. It's but interesting that she gave up, though, because she is, like, on the side, she has this lesbian relationship with her nurse, like, who's been yeah. with her the whole time. And so I find that really interesting that there's this weird acceptance of being bi for Cleopatra, and she couldn't quite think of a way that she could possibly persuade mm-hmm. The nurse also kind of sat ill with me because I think it plays into, again, like a vilification of queerness where it sort of seems like the idea is that the nurse is sort of manipulating her and to, one, enact her assassination plan, but also to satisfy her cravings or whatever it is. And it falls into like the two sort of queer characters are one, like a manipulator and two, this almost like reptilianly cool conqueror Octavian until he sees Ionius, Ionius. I think that was really insightful because in the end, all it says is like, Guy sexuality is perfectly acceptable. It's weird that he's emasculated when his attraction is shown, but like up until that point, you would have no idea. It's a code switch that happens, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting to see. But like then no one denies he becomes emperor. Yeah, because you would sort of think that if he's the the logical, you know, I guess fail safe to the Cleopatra plan that he would, I guess be like the hero of the day but that's not exactly how it's played out i was reminded i think hbo's rome does this a little bit but it plays into this perception of augustus as the reason he sort of came out on top of all the civil wars was because he was like a cool calculating Mm -hmm. political tactician he's like a house of cards character or something like that where he's this mastermind figure and just in as much as cleopatra's dilution through history into this femme fatale character i think augustus similarly has a kind of process where at least in a lot of representations, he is this sort of cool, like, boy genius type. Stoic. You could probably go that route, too. I would also throw into the mix here that the Romans conquering of Egypt, we are not meant to, I don't think, be sympathetic to that at all, no. right? Mm-hmm. No, no, really, no. like, pro-Egypt, like, at the end when she's like, go home, Romans! Or whatever, you know, when she's yes. standing on top of the pyramid. And a lot of people see in the depiction of Julius Caesar an American. And in fact, Mm -hmm. some people think he looks like Spiro Agnew. Um, That was one of the things that I read from a review from the New York Times when the movie came out. The cigar-chomping, ugly American, right? Which I thought was like a really interesting kind of imperialist critique coming from Japanese artists. Even though I love the kabuki death of Caesar. I did really like that. That was like one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. so cool. But again, giving us that different angle. Like you were just saying, we would expect Augustus to be the hero of the story, but the Romans are not the heroes of the story at all, I don't think. So I was Mm -mm. just sort of curious what you guys thought about this idea of the Romans as Americans. I got that sense through a lot of the montages too, like Mm -hmm. with the statues of Caesar. There was quite a few montages that I kind of wanted to freeze frame sometimes. I think there's the image of Caesar as Washington on the Potomac and there would be other representations of Japanese history that I could recognize, but so much of it was European or American specifically that they were drawing really strong connections to that Mm -hmm. again, like you said, had this imperial connotation, which is not surprising that Japan would not necessarily look favorably upon the Romans and what they were doing and connecting that to the Americans and what we did to Japan. Especially in the late 60s, early 70s, where American involvement is incredibly present. We were talking about Akira at the beginning of this episode, and like that film's so interesting because it's like the musings on like which directions Japanese culture could or might be going or the possibilities in the future as it sort of modernizes and enters the global economy and things like that. But to Chrissy's point, the sort of art montage is almost like a crash course if you took a Western art history course, a European art history course, you know, there was a lot of classic iconography and mm-hmm. that the way that it sort of grafted Rome within that nesting egg, yeah. I thought was very deliberate. Yeah. Well, I thought the montage of, I guess, conquering at the very beginning mm-hmm. was really horrifying, but it was kind of like fun to see the Romans be the very, very bad guys. So I think in so many of the more modern movies that we've talked about, 
which, you know, produced by either American or British producers, very much try to align Western Civ and America is Rome, all of that kind of stuff. And so it was really fun to be like, they're terrible. Mm -hmm. They were like shoving people into that hole and then smashing them all. It was like, Mm -hmm. oh, oh my God. So yeah, it was actually kind of a breath of fresh air to be like, these are terrible, terrible people and I'm not supposed to be on their side. I hate Caesar from the very beginning. One of the quotes I first wrote down was the first thing Caesar does when he parades into Egypt is he basically just kidnaps the mayor's daughter. And then later he explains he did it to like flush out the rebels or whatever. But like when he does that, one of the guys in the audience just goes, damn, Caesar. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And like walks away, which I really liked. I was like, Jesus, dude, chill out. (laughs) I would just also say about that opening scene, it's done in a really cartoony style. So there's this real jarring sense to the content and then the, mm-hmm. the, the aesthetic of it. Yes. And Tetsuka was very much a pacifist, as many Japanese were. After the war, he was very anti-Japanese emperors. He was very anti-war, very, very much anti-war. And we see other cartoon-like depictions of warfare in his work that I think are really meant to highlight the absurdity of war. And so, again, when you're just seeing this, you're like, what the hell is going on? It's like gang rapes or this mass extermination of people in a huge hole. And yet it's done in this like, haha, funny way. I do feel like this is meant to expose the absurdity of it all, right? And to make us really be like, war is gross and ridiculous. And I guess by extension, imperialism is uh, gross and and ridiculous too. So even in those sort of stylistic choices that he's making, there is something, you know, there's there's something going on there. It's sort of the Chekhov's gun thing, but even more so in animation, because every single piece of that, somebody had to draw that out hundreds or thousands of times to just get five seconds out of it. So like every choice is so deliberate. And so I do feel like this is the kind of movie that you might not want to watch it more than once. And I wouldn't blame you if you felt that way at all. (laughs) But I do feel like it reveals some good nuggets in here of depth, right? Of things you're thinking about. I think I was the one who really pushed for this one when you presented us with options to watch, to interview with. I actually really pushed with this one because... When we talked to the Parla Panitisa brothers about Blood of Zeus, there was this conversation about like, you could just show all of this violence, but when it came to like sexual violence, that wasn't present. And I'm like, I want something that is going to address that, even if it's cartoonish and it's not torture porn, which I I don't need Handmaid's Tale, but I want someone to like acknowledge this is what's happening, not just to this one-on-one battle, slow motion, knee to the face, crushed skull sort of a thing, which I found (laughs) hilarious. But like- this true depiction of what does warfare actually look like for everyone else who isn't like has their name known and they did a really good job of it. and even if they didn't go to like that step of just how bad a gang rape could be it happened for sure it happened and like most of our historical movies won't necessarily go there and i was really excited to see how this was going to address that topic because it's in the myth too and it's hard to go there and depicting it Absolutely. I do think it's a good avenue then to talk about how absurd Roman violence was. Cartoonish. Cartoonish, Mm -hmm. yes. And I, I think I've gotten to the point just like with a few students, I'm thinking just like in this past week, who were like, this was really bad. Like Caesar in Gaul was awful. I'm like, yeah, it was really bad. And it's like, you sort of go into a history class, a Roman history class, being like, I'm on the Roman side. And I think I like this view of sort of stepping into that absurdity of it all. Yeah. So Christy, I agree. I think I didn't want to see it, but I I liked the sort of frank addressment that it made. It was like, this is awful and this is terrible and cartoonishly terrible. I think it's part of why I love cartoons is just because anything is possible. So much more is possible, even when it's like a bad movie, which I mean... This is not a good movie. (laughs) Um, But I bet that maybe people listening will be very curious to see what the hell we've been talking about this whole time. Absolutely. It's provocative, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it does push you in all sorts of really strange directions. It seems to me like this movie really just suffered from 
A, wanting to be too many different things at one time, and B, just like terrible marketing, right? This is like a softcore porn or whatever. What, I mean, it, <laughs> it is a lot of things, but you're right. It is not, I think, um, Colin, you said that. It's not that, right? Um, yeah. No. <laughs> I will say in terms of the one thing I appreciated that like most of the Egyptian women had their breasts bared, like sometimes that was sexualized, but like when it was a bunch of background characters just walking around, it's like, yeah, not always a sexual thing. And it's like, I kind of appreciate that happening just in the background. And then women could choose to sexualize it for their advantage if they wanted to, but that wasn't what it was about 100% of the time. So like there was cool little things in there about sexuality that I don't think you would have gotten from an American cartoon, which is really cool to see. And I will say, I am not an Egyptian historian. I'm not an Egyptologist. But the backgrounds, right, the detail, the attention to detail in the drawing, in the style of it is amazing. Like, artistically speaking, if you just want to look at something and not think about it, it was pretty amazing. I really, yes. that's part of the appeal Absolutely. for me too, is just the aesthetic of it. And that is kind of quintessential anime is like really detailed backgrounds, you know, lots going on, um, lush, vivid landscapes, and then a little bit more cartoony characters up front. There's a great video I saw a, a while back on YouTube of an artist kind of explaining, like he takes like one scene in Akira and there's two guys talking on a roof. And then he says like, here's a painting that they did for the back. And it's this immensely complex cityscape with all these lights. And like, here's how it shows up in the movie. And it's literally a sliver between two buildings. It's just like, that's the background that that's sort of panning by as it goes through. And just like this, that level of detail and attention is really incredible. I want to maybe do two things because we've hinted at it, but we haven't talked about this huge question of whether or not Cleopatra is white as a color. But like the thing about Cleopatra, even before her transformation was like, she was so white, like actually whitewashing her on top of these connotations of associating Romans with the United States in particular and Western seven point. So I was curious about that. Not even this whole debate of like, is she Greek? Is she Egyptian? But like the actual choice to make her the palest character. Mm -hmm. And specifically, even just to add to that, just about all of the other Egyptians that we see are people of color and of darker skin. It, she really stands out among all the Egyptians we meet. Even and her brother. Yeah. Is this playing into just popular perceptions of her, idealizations of beauty that sort of emphasize fair skin? There's a lot of ways you can go with that. I think I was just too distracted by how green Caesar was standing <laughs> next to her that I was literally was like, well, her eyeshadow matches his skin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> I think like there is a colorist aspect to what's happening mm. at first. So she is the lightest skinned of the Egyptians even before she is transformed, which probably has something to do with the fact that she is the most beautiful and she's been cultivated into this femme fatale or whatever. And she's so effective at putting the Cleopatra plan in effect. <laughs> and I think this might be a little bit of a cop out, but obviously in Japanese culture, there is racism, there is bias. In this regard, I don't actually think it's that different from what's happening you know, in America. But I would also say that the Elizabeth Taylor factor here probably mm, yeah. plays a pretty big role. Now, obviously we don't see a transformation that's like quite as dramatic as that original film. She's sort of always who she is. So she gets obviously like whiter and more plasticky than she was before that. So there is some aspect of like acknowledging an Egyptian past, mm -hmm. but it's not perfect by any stretch. But I think that some of that might just be coming from the fact that this is such a riff on that original film. I think that's a good point. Because like the one thing that I liked about her ugly appearance was she had freckles. It's like, yes, yeah. if you're going to be that pale of skin out in Egypt, if not a tan, you're going to be freckled. So like part of molding her into the perfect woman, just in general, based by world standards, then like you would have to get rid of even that acknowledgement of a sun blemish on the skin. And then I guess my other question is, what did you guys think of the agents who, at the end of the day, what did they bring to the story, if anything? Freaking weird, man. Like, I don't know what to say. It's like everything about that. Just the whole casualness of a woman gets like vaporized. And then they're like, let's sit down and have some caviar and like talk about the vintage of the champagne we're about to drink. 
one thing I thought about is one of the characters basically says, right, as they're being given their dossiers on the people that they're going to inhabit, for lack of a better, they're going to ghost in the shell them. And one of them is like, oh, you're going to be Rupa, Cleopatra's companion. He's like, oh, maybe I'll get to bang Cleopatra and like that, which is like a weird trope that just shows up of like, if you could go back in time, what would you want to do? Like, you know, have sex with historical figure X, Y, or Z. I was like, Jesus, dude. Like, um, but then the joke is that he ends up in the body of a leopard. And then, you know, he's a creepy, gropey leopard for the whole movie. And then whereas the guy who gets put into the slave's body ends up basically being put into like, you know, Roman Rambo, basically. He's like this awesome guy, which also there's another like just weird logical (laughs) hang up I just had. So it sort of was implied that Ionius and Libya, like they had a relationship and like fell in love while they were in Egypt together. Do those two agents come back to the future and they're like are we in love now or is that just like this that's like a black mirror episode right yeah yeah well and they've lived almost complete other lives right like they've gone and lived in the past for years because we know that at least cleopatra had this child and we know that the timeline between caesar and mark antony and actium and blah 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 that's years and years. So how old are they when they it's get like back? That, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes ever is basically yeah. they find this probe out in space and it zaps Picard and he like lives an entire lifetime in like the final years of this planet. Um, oh, there's yeah. like a great Rick and Morty joke about that where he like lives a man's entire life and it turns out to be a video game. Um, no, the whole thing sort of strikes me as the weird party question. The like, what if or like, where would you mm-hmm. go or what would you build or... All of that stuff. So I kind of, I kind of dig. My favorite part is the guy tells us is you actually can't leave this existence until Cleopatra dies, but you show up right at the beginning of her story and her actual plan for you to have to figure out has not changed in that period of time. So you're literally just stuck waiting for her to die. So it's like, we've known what the plan was for like decades. Can we uh, wrap this up, please? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes it like an unintentionally like Lovecraftian horror story or like Kafka-esque. The one guy has to live as a leopard for like a decade <laughs> and like raises a family of leopards. <laughs> and then he, and he, how do you and return to, to human society? He leave his leopard kittens behind. Oh my gosh. I know. You just <laughs> made me sad because at least the other two didn't have a kid together they left behind in the past. <laughs> and what if that kid went on to become the next Adolf Hitler? Oh my God. <laughs> changed everything (laughs) but i will say this about the end which you know this is a little bit of a downer but they're like okay we figured out what the plan is they intercept the message from the aliens or whatever the hell and they're like hit the red button and blow up the planet and it's like okay (laughs) you just spent 20 years living under roman rule as a subject you witness the horrors of the imperialist project and you come back and it's like, destroy planet. Like it's just a reiteration of that same dynamic of war and violence. And again, I don't think as tacked on and insane and unnecessary as all of that sci-fi aspect of this is, I do think there's like a message here of like stuff never changes, right? It's always mm-hmm. the same. People are still going to engage in these behaviors and you know, it doesn't matter, right? So it's kind of dark, honestly, at the yeah. end. I, I was a little bit like, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And abrupt. <laughs> yeah, like, very. Oh, yes. And your, your solution could have been just make all your political leaders gay men, apparently, and you would have been fine. Right? It's, it's like the end of the Aeneid or something where it just ends with the sudden act of violence and then curtains. Yeah. Um. That is a little troubling, I think. But fits in with the Tetsuka, I think, messaging pretty well. So I think before we end up, I would like to go around and get everyone's favorite snippet, scene, moment, image. I want to hear it. It's so hard. I mentioned the Kabuki Theater Caesar assassination. I really liked that because I do watch enough anime. Like the music sounds familiar and then like seeing the movements. I'm like, this is a really cool way to represent his assassination. I really liked that. And then the strange one that I, it made me bust out laughing is when they're getting shoved into the tubes by the mechanical arms (laughs) (laughs) into the past. I was just like, I don't know why, but I find that absolutely hilarious. And Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it for some reason because if already the like live action bodies with animated heads had not prepared you for what was coming, that moment definitely did. Mm -hmm. I had fun with that. Similar to that, I really love when Cleopatra shoves herself into the bag. 
<laughs> she yeah. like rolls up into a ball and just is in a bag. And <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> she just folds in on herself. And that was so wild. That would be my favorite part. And when she comes out, just like I long just like limb this, after like long legs coming out and it's just like a bag with legs it was like a bag of holding in D D or something i was like why <laughs> oh my god i know and that's like the riff on the carpet right yeah, yeah. getting rolled up in the rug right and it but it was so much freakier it was so much and freakier. i don't know if it's like meant to be sexier i have no idea but it was so bizarre it reminds I mean, I me guess- of that metaphor that they've talked about how women are taught to make themselves smaller to not take up space i don't know if he intended that but like i felt that of just all right now the mission starts and you just have to diminish yourself as much as possible to fit in this bag and she's like i know it's gonna be a tight fit like you couldn't get a bigger bag like really where's the carpet we um, just had Thanksgiving, but I was reminded of like when the turkey's like wrapped up and like shrink wrapped. That's like what I kept thinking about. Oh, I was thinking about me shoved into like my leggings trying to eat more turkey. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite was the whole gladiator fight where, where first like, just like the visual gags of the guy he's fighting who like just eats a spear. Then the final reveal where he like he turns around and he's like got a gun and he just shoots him. And I was... I was reminded of that meme where the guy's like, call an ambulance, but not for me. And he like whips out a gun. Just the whole gladiator fight I thought was wild. And also just the reveal of the gun was like, oh, oh yeah, by the way, I invented this thing. I don't really know what it is. And he just takes out a handgun, which like, is that thing still in history? Is, was that flying around? Like, what someone's going to find it. Yeah. I do feel like they return to it and he's like, remember that thing that he used or something, right? And they're like Mm -hmm. trying to kind of figure it out, but I'm not sure that they do. Gosh, well, you guys have hit on so many great moments. I think the Kabuki death of Julius Caesar is awesome. And like, I love how it's, again, that alienation effect, a story that's so familiar to us, like so iconic and put into this super unfamiliar genre is just such a clever clever turn and I also really love the art history montage it was definitely a moment of showing off for the animators right like look we can do western art like come on (laughs) you know I mean you want your Degas here you go you want your mirror here you go so there was this flourish to that that we talked a little bit about what it might have meant but just in terms of like art it was awesome I, gosh, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. It's just so many weird moments. I guess I will just add one that we haven't talked about yet that really brought a smile to my face that was not profound in any way. In fact, it's probably the opposite of profound. It was when Caesar had diarrhea. I forgot how many the, things happened in this movie. I know, right? Like, so this comic, this comical Caesar, and I mean, we didn't talk about the epileptic fits either, but um, oh just God. this idea that Caesar's just a human, just like the rest of us who really, really needs to get to a toilet was like, I was just cracking up at that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty silly and hilarious, but... Again, like I said, probably not the most profound moment of the movie, but one that made me chuckle for sure. Excellent. Definitely. <laughs> and, you know, the gun and like, well, the, all the other crazy. Something about the, the art montage, the fact that a lot of it was ballerinas brought me back to our last episode about how there's always got to be dancing girls in the oh, yeah. and it's like we just have a new version of that so new dancing girl i just was like on a real lucy in the sky with diamonds mm-hmm. if you guys have seen yellow submarine that's my mm-hmm. favorite part of a yellow submarine you know it's this like very kind of slow motion dancing girls and i felt like that was like a point of influence or something there was something going on there so yeah well i just want to say thank you for going on this insane journey with me you guys because this was not an easy movie to process thank Thank you you for bringing us to this movie this is great we never would have found it anyways so before we say our adieus kiara where can people find you or follow you on the internet if they would like well i'm of course on twitter i'm at Chiara Sulprizio, which is C-H-I-A-R-A-S-U-L-P-R-I-Z-I-O. Sorry, I've got to spell it for people, but I do. And of course, you can visit my website. It's animatedantiquity.com. 
don't need to spell that, thank God. And there you will find many, many different clips of animation, most with some commentary and links to other sources about them. I have over a hundred posts right now and I have so much more to post. I'd say I probably have at least 50 things to post. It is absolutely unreal. When I started this project, I had no idea how much animation there is out there that engages with Greece, Rome, and Egypt. Mm -hmm. And if Cleopatra, goddess of sex, is not your thing, you (laughs) should be able to find something else out there that is. So please go check it out and yeah, reach out to me if if you want to talk cartoons and classics, I am always here for that. Thanks. We look forward to whenever the, the new season or whenever the Thermi Romai Noai drops, we look yes. forward to having you back because I really want to talk about that and yeah. also write a textbook based on it. But... I think that's a really brilliant idea. I am not kidding around. And no. I should also just say by way of closing, there is so much animation being produced right now that mm-hmm. is Greek and Roman themed. And I wrote an article about it for Hyperallergic recently. But no joke, there are like probably like 10 things that are going to be coming out on top of the second season of The Blood of Zeus, the new Thermiromite, there's new Asterix coming. There's going to be a movie with Justin Bieber starring as Cupid, telling the story of Cupid and Psyche. So there, yes, (laughs) we'll see if it ever gets made. My fingers are crossed, though, on that. But um, it's a musical. So, of course it is. Yeah, it should be. So we are living in a golden age of mm, animation that's about the ancient world. And video games and all that stuff that's happening. I mean, that's abutted. Thank you again, as always, listeners. Follow us at at DigMovies on Twitter or visit us on MoviesWeDig.com. Please like, review, and subscribe. You can also find us on most platforms for podcasts. Kiara, thank you again so much. I'll see everyone around the corner. So bye. Bye.